0: Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just
1: catapulting
2: towards
1: that,
2: you know, like some greater purpose? Every with bloated we are the only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his This is Michael Mann, and I ride with
1: Extended Clip. He's voted All Hollywood three years in a row, first team. <laughs> Welcome to Extended Clip. I am one of your hosts, Eddie Averill.
0: I am Malcolm
2: Bong. Uh, I'm JT White, and JT does not stand for James Toback, let that be clear.
1: <laughs> we thought we could sneak him on here, incognitus, but that was not gonna happen, unfortunately. You know, the, uh, the woke mob would stop us from having such a prestigious man on our podcast. True, sure, we really
0: wanted to associate and talk to this guy and get to know him, but... <laughs> Definitely wanted to I get to I guess we'll just do this him.
1: movie instead. <laughs> You know, a lot of bad things have been levied at James Toback, a lot of accusations, and I just, I just want to sit down with the guy, chop it up, set the record straight, that's all. Um, yeah, I mean, look, we don't need to go into the whole morality thing, we talked about a Roman Polanski episode a couple, yeah, we talked about a Roman Polanski movie a couple weeks ago, we, you know where you are listening to this podcast, we, we are not friends of Toback as it were, uh. And we, we can look at his Wilt Chamberlain-esque sexual harassment numbers with nothing but, uh, as, as Malcolm said last week, raising a finger in umbrage. Yeah,
2: Jesus I'm, Christ.
1: I, I'm
0: glad that we're starting the episode this way. No, I'm it's just like... starting the episode being like, we disavow, we're not associated.
2: No, it's just you like... You can
0: just feel the sweat beads on us.
2: No, it's just like, It's purely just insane, like, the amount, like, the quantity. Like, it's just something, like, I don't know. You obviously have to address. It's not, like, I mean, again, not to say, like, whatever bullshit, like, Polanski, but just, Mm -hmm. like, the, again, it's, like, for someone who didn't have as much, like, power or influence, certainly in Hollywood, as, like, someone like Harvey Weinstein, Mm -hmm. it's just, like, Toback was, like... Just, I don't know, just, again, just purely looking at Wikipedia, just the names and allegations, it's just crazy.
1: Well, this is a true, like, dirtbag filmmaker. You know, like, he is a guy who, from the start, is a sex pest and a gambling addict, uh, as well as, like, you know, a Harvard-educated writer. Uh, And like a film critic, he was chair of the film critic circle, you know, him and Armand White both have that in common, uh, and we'll probably reference quite a bit this Q&A between Armand White and James Toback, but both of them are uh, admirers of Pauline Kael, both Paulettes, who both chaired the uh, NYFCC uh, for a point in time, and Toback, you know, kind of came into filmmaking in the late stages of New Hollywood, Uh, he wrote... Um, The Gambler, of course, and uh, then directed Fingers and did some more movies throughout the 80s and uh, all very, you know, autobiographical seeming movies or at least autobiographically uh, related. Um, So this movie finds him almost at the height of his power. This is 1999. And yeah, if, if you're looking at, you know, Hollywood as a kind of a gross power struggle, just like on a production level, Uh, You know, this is like the peak of Miramax both having like the uh, the India claim and the awards stuff. And, uh, you know, James Toback, who is a like known sex pest at this point, can throw his weight around and kind of do what he wants. And this just has so many stars in it. It's insane. Like every scene, there is just a surprise of like a big name kind of Uh, This film takes place in the music industry, in the hip hop industry, uh, with about, I would say about a third of the Wu-Tang Clan playing themselves. You also have uh, Raekwon playing a fictional rapper named Cigar. Not really sure what the distinguishment there is, uh, the need for it exactly. There's not exactly much plot there, but uh, regardless, it's this kind of sprawling crime drama about identity and music industry and crime all intersecting. Uh, you have a basketball player played by Alan Houston, who, you know, Allen Houston's in his sixth year in the NBA when this comes out, and he's playing like an 18-year-old college freshman, which is very strange. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, so you have this subplot where he's approached by Ben Stiller uh, for a like gambling proposition. Ben Stiller turns out to be a detective. It's a kind of crazy all-over-the-place movie Uh, for a 100-minute movie it has quite a bit of uh, plot mechanics going on doesn't it
0: a lot of plot mechanics but uh, obviously not so interested uh, so much in the uh, resolution of these plot mechanics and kind of more interested in kind of uh, the questions that these scenarios arouse
2: there's so much going on but it's so much of it is just like provocation and, like, sleazy, like, situations and scenarios that you're just sort of left to, like... I I don't know. Like, certainly this, like, riles up, like, a particular, uh, I don't know, class of people. Perhaps some of the hoity-toity individuals depicted uh, it. Like, the dinner scene at the very beginning is so funny. Um, But, like, I don't know. and, And, I mean, again, like, the first scene uh like as well it's just like that level of like racial provocation
1: yeah i mean right away you open with these three teenage black boys and they're you know roaming through the forest and there's always this like childhood joy like okay what kind of movie am i getting into here if you don't know anything about the movie of course and then it's revealed that they're peeping on a uh i wouldn't say a train being run but uh multiple white women servicing a black man in the forest
2: yeah it's like central park right
0: yeah that's like an ev- evocation of itself kind of with like the central park five controversy of course and, yeah and all that stuff it on many and like it has like uh i think that wu-tang song like daddy's little girl that, playing over it is. so it's it's really laying There's it on. Girl. The
1: provocations (laughs) never end between the dialogue, the editing, the music choices, the plot choices, uh, you know, character attributes. It's, like, really throwing everything at the wall and kind of asking more questions than it answers, for sure. Uh, But I I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I just think it holds it back from being, like, as good as it possibly could be.
0: Yeah, well, it's kind of funny, right? Because it's, like, I think another... This is like the New York version of this movie, kind of like a little bit more arty and refined. And then you kind of have, uh, what is it, Malibu's Most Wanted? I you know knew you I were mean? gonna
2: bring Kinda that as... up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Malibu's, yeah. I mean, that's that's an easy two points for all the for all those you know following along at home.
2: <laughs>
0: uh, and I, I think you know what I mean, or even I guess Bullworth, If you wanna you wanna be. You know, they kind of tackle, you know, different movies, but kind of tackle similar issues. Uh, But what I think with this one, it's kind of interesting because it doesn't have clean answers to these questions because, you know, they're still unanswered, you know what I mean? And some of them uh, are still, you know, not quite resolved to this day. So I kind of admire this film's kind of uh, rough around the edges, kind of, uh, you know, kind of making this very like political movie by setting up these scenarios and kind of I know playing with stereotype in a way because it's kind of you know you name the movie black and white right and it's like supposed to uh like dissect white and black relations to a certain extent but it's like you know all the black people in this movie are are rappers Mike Tyson you know what I mean basketball players yeah they're rappers and athletes and that's it that's basically it and so it's kind of you know this this is the black america that these you know rich suburban white kids are seeing or you know even just normal suburban white kids this Mm -hmm. is the 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 culture that they're seeing and kind of the question i feel like is that's being asked throughout the movie it's like what's the cultural exchange here like what what do white people get out of like you know, act acting like their favorite hip hop stars. You know what I mean. And what's what's kind of uh, what's what's going on here with this phenomenon exactly. And I think uh, it's a pretty funny scene at the beginning uh, where Jared Leto is Jared Leto in his three scenes in this movie. <laughs> one, the the one where uh, he's in the classroom and you know he kind of asks the quid, the kids the the question of the movie. And uh, I don't know, there's some really funny answers there with the editing, kind of like the hip-hop behind it. And we get to see, you know, a lot of famous child actors in this movie, like Elijah Wood, uh, Bijou Phillips. And uh, they kind of give like these weird non-answers. And I guess, I did not know if you guys knew this, but most of the movie was uh, improv. And I, I, that makes a lot of sense, given kind of like... The jumpiness of the movie and how it kind of edits together
1: i want to examine today with you the question of identity and is culture involved in in his race a factor charlie
2: i want to be black i want to get into the hip-hop thing i want to go there raven times are definitely you know different now things are different and and obviously now you see a, a lot of white kids you know that that admire look up to the black
0: community and, and, and hip-hop and, you
1: know, and, and rappers. Brent? Yeah, I feel like the jump-cut style definitely helps, you know, the rough-around-the-edges improv acting, for sure. Uh, I love that classroom scene. It's very silly. Uh, you know, Chiaroscuro is written on the wall, you know, the interplay of uh, <laughs> Shadows, Light and Dark, and it's just very, uh, I don't know, very silly. It ends with the Othello quote, you know, I am not what I am, and... The irony there, of course, is that Othello is a character who is generally played in blackface, uh, whether it's, you know, Laurence Olivier, Orson Welles, or whoever. Uh, So, yeah, I I think that that classroom scene is kind of a microcosm of the whole movie. But, of course, that is not all there is. There are just so many characters. Then you get Brooke Shields introduced. She's shooting a mini-DV documentary about this whole phenomenon, and uh, yeah, throughout this, we just kind of go back and forth through all of these subplots. Robert Downey Jr. is Brooke Shields' husband in this, uh, in what I can only describe as gay face. It's really oh bad, my it's God. like, his his performance is rough, man. And uh, his, his scene with Mike Tyson is so funny. Oh. It's like, ridiculous.
2: I had a dream about you. This is what I want, this is why my heart is racing, I'm so fluttering, and if I seem strange, I can, I'd like to apologize. I had a dream about you two weeks ago, and so it's so funny because you're wearing a shirt, a lot like the shirt you're wearing right now. And in the in the dream-
1: Listen.
2: I'm on parole, brother, please. Okay. It's, it's, Am I, am I annoying you? I just wanna- I know, okay. I'm gonna just have a peaceful moment here, please. Okay. Well, in the dream you were holding me, that's all. Oh!
1: Oh,
2: God! Just, like, his coming out, too. Like, literally, like, at the end. Ermi not, like, coming out because he's very, like, clearly gay. But just, like, the first, like, admission of it to Brooke Shields of, like, being, like, no, he wants to be openly out is, I may come, Guzzler. Um and, and, just, and that's
1: after Mike Tyson called him a cum drinker too. Yeah, no. It's so something in the air on that set about, you know, the fluids. I don't know.
2: Well, I mean, again, it's the movie's black and white, not gay and straight, so you can only like you're you can only tackle one big issue at a time. Of course, some That's s- so true. Some of the edges are going to be a little rougher. The even, even though in a <laughs> film with many rough edges.
0: I, I want to make a movie, kind of like the you know, there's this, mo- this movie Black and White. I make my movie Gay and
2: Straight, but instead it's called Straight Eye
0: for the Queer Guy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> About the interplay between gay and straight culture. I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll t- I'll make it like this one, just
0: kind of uh, throw everything at, at the wall, you know what I mean, and just uh, provoke
1: some questions and whatnot, and. Call it a day. I don't know if I've talked about this before, but you talking about you mentioning a uh, straight eye for the queer guy, uh, <laughs> it reminds me of uh, when queer eye for the straight guy was first on TV. Uh, I, you know, just from like advertisements and stuff, I had a vague idea of what it was, and it wasn't until the recent like revival of it that I found out I was wrong. And for almost twenty years, I thought it was like a game show. Where it's a bunch of like straight guys and one gay guy, <laughs> and you have to like that find out who the gay guy is. Pretty, and uh, I—that's what I thought it was paper. from the time from the time I was like six years old until I was like probably like twenty-three, maybe. Instead, it's actually gay gay people helping straight
0: dudes out. You know, uh, before you know, the, the they used words like incels. You know the. Mm-hmm. They're helping the people out. I don't know. That was
2: stupid. You can cut that. Yeah, off. no, it's okay. We'll probably cut out that whole exchange. Yeah, it's, uh, hey, hey. Again, we're we're bound to have a few rough edges here ourselves. We're just getting to the core of things. It's a, and again, it's not like which I think is totally fine. And again, a lot of movies that I really love. I mean, which unfortunately I don't can't really say I really love this movie, but it is a lot of fun. And, like, mm-hmm. compelling at points. But just, like... I, I, I don't know. There are just some points where it very much so, like, uh, falters with, like... I, I just, mm-hmm. like, some of the characterizations. It's, like, what are you, like... what wh- What's going on here? Like, particularly uh, Ben Stiller and uh, Claudia Schiffer. Like, they're just, like... The way Claudia Schiffer turns on, like, Houston... In particular, again, it's like it's playing towards that like the the nature of the provocation where she like she's with Houston and uh sells him uh sells when he's gonna like flip on his drug dealer friend, she sells him out uh to fuck the friend as well. Um and it's just like again, it's like that characterization there is like certain it feels a little dicey. It's like okay. But, like, it's, it makes sense within the logic of the film to just sort of, like, I don't know, rile you up. A lot of the
0: criticism of this movie, and I think it's somewhat fair, but uh, is that, you know, there's a whole lot of provocation, a whole lot of riling up of these questions and kind of, I don't know, sometimes it falls victim to its use of stereotype and kind of, you know, falls into kind of like the lame hackneyed, you know, idea of things that we've seen before or whatever like i guess the claudia character out of all of the 72 characters in this movie is not the most well defined and kind of the ben stiller character is almost
2: given like too much backstory or yeah, whatever yeah no he's like, like he's the, they go really in depth in the white cuck Yeah, no. Ben Stiller
1: just uh, seems like he's a cameo role, and then becomes a main plot, and then at one point just like does this whole monologue exposition dump for Joey Pants, where he's like basically telling this whole story of him basically being a James Toback stand-in here, uh, where he used to be a gambler and then became you know a man of the law or whatever. (laughs) And yeah, it's uh, I I don't know. I feel like the uh, the James Toback. Uh, self bio stuff is kind of scattered across a lot of characters here which is uh uh I, it's not it's not a great aspect of this and i think the most autobiographical thing about james Toback on this movie is unfortunately probably the treatment of women as jt was saying the characterizations are just like so thin and so like like i get the purpose you know uh, so many of these are provocations into themselves, these characters. But I don't know. It feels a, li- a little bit like thin soup to me. Uh, a lot of, uh, yeah. lo- in terms of who gets to be a real character and who's going to be a stand-in for an idea in the script. Well, it's you know? like,
2: I, with the Claudia for Sch- her character, it's just like, okay, her character is just like white slut like who just wants to <laughs> fuck black men. And like... Okay, like, you can play within the realm of, like, that stereotype, certainly. But it doesn't, like... Some scenes, like, again, are clearly played for, like, comic value and are using stereotypes in, like, a more meaningful way. Like, I think the pairing of the opening scene where it's the younger girls, uh, the younger white girls from the affluent neighborhood, like, uh, fucking the two black guy or black guys in the woods, or I mean, uh, yeah, like Central Park. Um, that contrasted with, like, the classical music, hoity-toity, rich dinner. Like, that's funny, and I feel like there's, like, I don't know, you're... I, I wouldn't necessarily go as far to say you're, like, getting something meaningful out of that, but it's funny, and it feels like the awareness is there. But then you, like, flip back and forth to, like the Claudia Schiffer character, or Robert Downey Jr., and it's just like, okay, these characters are just stereotypes.
0: Yeah, you know, you play stereotype games, you get stereotype prizes. And I guess, I guess the thing is, though, it's like a, the kind of like the white slut aspect is kind of covered with the the younger teenager characters. So kind of like the the Greta or whatever, the Claudia Schiffer character, kind of just feels like, a retread of that and also like the ben stiller character is trying to i feel like it's trying to like kind of get across like it's trying to connect a couple dots that don't quite make a straight line where like like it's kind of trying to connect how these kids are sublimating their like teenage rebellion into hip-hop culture how like he kind of did that with like you know his his parents being activists and h- him being like like a scumbag, you know, gambler or whatever mm-hmm. and kind of like this I, this this need to reinvent himself and you know find identity in in a place where you know in in it, he feeling that his own culture is not exactly so rich and filled with whatever so it's and it, but it doesn't quite make so much sense and you know I don't know I feel like you know what i want from this movie is to kind of almost lean more in its like formlessness direction and we kind of just have like random meetings of like um brooke shields and and the kids meeting method man at the wall and kind of just having some weird improv moments there rather than kind of following this ben stiller joe pantoliano um storyline that kind of Ties it all together, but it, and it, and I feel like the movie's not even interested in those things for the most part. It, it, it kind of maybe on a scene to scene basis, there'll be more interest. So it, it's kind of uh, yeah. I don't know. I feel like this could have been more formless, more uh, I don't know, Godardian or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, hey, Toback was a fan of Goddard as well. Uh, that's a great... Maybe it's because you just read that uh, Armand White-James Toback uh, discussion mm-hmm. that mentions Goddard that you bring it up. But it is, and I feel like the uh, the plot tying everything together with the stiller undercover character using two different friends of Rich Bowers to get in on him... Uh, It feels pretty obligatory that feels like a studio mandated third act type thing you know like he he almost had to do that so he could pull off the first 50 minutes of this movie feeling so sprawling and random and scene to scene Uh, I which I I actually do like but I just I don't know I like it with reservations you know. Uh, The Brett Ratner cameo, very strange. It's a hit. I'm doing Hollywood films. You got a hit record, okay? I want to do a video because if I do the video, it's going to cross over. I've never been to Staten Island before, okay? But I know what you're about. Uh, Again, I don't get why Raekwon is playing a fictional rapper named Cigar rather than just being Raekwon when Method Man plays himself and so does Ghostface and Inspected Deck and everything. Uh, But... uh, The, it ends with Brett Ratner directing a video for Raekwon's character Cigar over the end credits, which is very funny.
0: No, yeah, I, I mean, I like, I kind of enjoy the Brett Ratner scene because I think it's, I think this is another kind of thread it's trying to get at that it, it is not even clear, but kind of like the, kind of like the cap how capitalist hip hop is for the most part and how it's become mm-hmm. such like a major product and kind of like um and like i don't know just like that scene with yeah that that scene you know with brett ratner is also the same scene where uh, method man rolls up and kind of like brett ratner kind of like selling this music video idea to them i don't know it was just kind of a funny scene kind of like he's like i I understand what you're doing but i can make it cross over you know what (laughs) i mean and kind of like um you know this the the market of hip hop and kind of you know how it's uh, becoming such a, a mainstream thing and what you know what to do with that and with you know i think that's with multiple characters kind of like selling out the power character or something i think it's trying to get at something there that's like totally yeah it totally doesn't do enough to really make any sense of it but uh you know it's trying to do something there you know another funny thing about this movie this like The club Scott Conn aspect is like is such a like, I thought that was going to be like a factor kind of like the old Italian wise guys versus (laughs) like the, the black gangsters and kind of like old versus new New York or whatever. But that really doesn't amount to anything.
1: Yeah, uh, Scott Kahn in peak thumb mode. Like, he is absolutely (laughs) just thumb James Kahn in this movie. It's crazy. I mean, he always kind of is, but this movie is the peak of that look for him. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's another thread that just kind of goes nowhere. You know, just like in the beginning of this, we see James Toback as a guy who owns a studio and doesn't want to let. Uh, the rappers record there unless they have a white lawyer to meet with him you know and it's all this stuff that's like very obvious provocation kind of stuff and you know i i hate to say it it's like (laughs) i hate to say a tv show did it better but just seeing uh the very brief uh, screen debut by Michael B. Jordan and seeing Method Man's scene and a few other scenes reminded me, of course, of The Wire, which uh, gets at a lot of these ideas in a much more interesting way, uh, just like on the side of a hundred other things, of course. Uh, but what this has going for it is more on the filmmaking side. Toback has style in his bones and like a passion for filmmaking, clearly. Uh, the jump cut style influenced by Godard, of course, shaping the improv Uh, based acting style is a really great way to liven up the scenes and none of the scenes really feel dreary in a way there's some stuff that's hard to watch because it's like intentionally uh, cringeworthy or whatever Uh, but I think that the movie moves at a very quick pace I love the way it looks especially the exteriors like the the color grading is like really I don't know whether it's the color grading or the film stock they shot it on but it has a really unique look to it that I really admire and it really feels like one of the last grasps of some of those like new Hollywood guys uh, getting to still make fun movies in like the 90s even.
0: Like just as like a New York movie, it's really cool because mm-hmm. it is a lot of exteriors and it is shot in a way, it, it looks like The Godfather or something like that in scenes. <laughs> it, it almost has like a goldish tint to it, uh, you know, obviously very different use, but i i i i I like that aspect of it kind of like uh almost like a walking around aspect like i love the scene where uh the the kids and the documentarians are on the staten island ferry and you know asking kind of more of like kind of like the broad questions about like uh you know why are you as a suburban kid into hip-hop culture or whatever asking those questions but it's kind of just them answering these questions and this kind of almost sincere uh feeling way with the improv acting style you know them kind of off the dome giving these responses even you know if they're not exactly what we want to hear you know i feel like there's a there's a sincerity to their response and it pairs well with like these shots of like a golden hour stat staten island ferry and the sun hitting the water and i think there's a sincere quality to this movie that I admire, you know, behind all kind of like the stereo- use of stereotype and kind of trying to make you uncomfortable that I feel like there there's a desire here to ask some tough questions that even, I don't know, you know, like uh, some, of, some movies that have done it better and have done it in a more interesting or just a more traditional storytelling way have d- dug into it. I feel like it's just, it's it's at least kind of doing the the intellectual work of asking these tough questions. It Doesn't quite answer them, which is kind of the maybe not the disappointment because it's okay to left unanswered questions. You know, let audiences respond. You know, as a Roar search test, but I guess it's kind of like when you have this much provocation, you you kind of want uh, a little bit of uh, vegetables, so to speak, at the end. Sometimes, you know, if but I I think I, I think it's. Uh, the quality it has of kind of asking the t- the tough questions. I don't know. I-, I feel like a lot of movies wouldn't go places this movie went.
2: Oh, I agree. And I like with what you're getting at there with uh, how sincere the movie is, I feel like just for me, it comes across the most in like the scenes with the kids. And I feel like. The way they're responding and improvising just feel the most true to life. Like it's not like I don't know when, and again, like it might speak to the background of the character, like the the qualities that the characters were given, or or I mean, the actors were given beforehand. But like, e- like Robert Downey Jr. or even Brooke Shields, like the, those characters feel a little strained. But when you get like the kids sincerely responding to things. And I think a lot of it is helped by the fact that a lot of the times it's shield like prompting them with questions uh, that they're actively responding to. But there's that earnestness there. And oftentimes that earnestness is mixed with some of the cringier, like shot more shocking material. Like when, uh, uh, when the one white girl, Uh, is explaining like using the n word with er versus a like early on in the film. It's just like, ugh. It's like obviously that's like again one of those bits that's designed to just like make you feel like uncomfortable. But the way it like plays out is like again the kid like is very like the performance is very like unaware that there's any problem there. And I, I don't know, there is, like, like, especially with, like, dealing with how racial relations, like, impact youth and, like, especially getting all this, like, information, like, downstream of culture, I feel like kids get it in a very chaotic and messy way and then regurgitate, like, racial relations in a very, like, oftentimes not politically correct and just like clustered way and so i don't know the 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 stuff with the like kids in the documentary feel the i don't know feel the strongest to me and again i think that goes with like what we've been saying about the ben stiller sort of third act close feeling like insanely scripted
1: also uh i know you said close but clothes with a th ben stiller's wardrobe in this is ridiculous (laughs) the like really slick jacket and like oddly fitting pants and like weird hunch he walks with it's i don't know i i'm not one to usually complain about this but it's like the um the realism of like the police type stuff is so ridiculous and like the the actual (laughs) law side of the crime aspect of this movie is so just off to the side kind of, but you know, sometimes you don't need that. It's, it's fine. Um, any, uh, any final thoughts on this one before we, uh, before we wrap it up, what about the music in this one? So the, this is like an interesting topic. So the soundtrack has some, you know, some Wu Tang tracks on it. And these guys appear in the film. Um, I believe also Onyx appears in the film briefly. Yeah. Sticky fingers as, as young white gentleman growing up in the early 2000s uh, did you did you boys grow up listening to rap music and did you have any kind of any kind of weird feelings about that growing up it not being your music per se I you
0: know, I never really I guess I never really thought of it like that especially as a kid it's only when I got older that I thought of it mm-hmm. I don't know in those terms I mean I guess I don't even exactly think of it in those terms but like the idea of that coming up. Cause like, I feel like, you know, I'm a little bit, I don't know, maybe it's just where you grow up too, but I I feel like I'm like, you know, a little bit younger than you guys. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but like, uh, like I feel like hip hop was like the dominant genre of my, my childhood, Mm, like even beginning as a child, not, not even starting in high school, but even as a child, like, I feel like I heard people talking about like Eminem and like 50 Cent and... Uh, you know, or, or stuff. I don't know. People who are like kind of crossover pop hits of that stuff. Like, uh, I don't know, like flow. Yeah, no,
1: the, the, I the know. pop music at the time was rap rather than rock basically, uh, other than yeah. whatever, like cold play. Uh, but yeah, no, exactly. Like I kind of remember that change in tide, like in the very early two thousands, I am a little older than you, Malcolm, uh, born in, I was born in 94 Uh, And I do remember the changing of the tide a bit, seeing like more like just straight up rap songs on the popular, you know, uh, 102.7 KISS FM, you know, hosted by Ryan Seacrest. Uh, You know, instead of dropping into the Foo Fighters, he was dropping into uh, Kanye West or stuff like that. Uh, And it was, uh, you know, interesting to me and I took a while to get into rap because I never listened to it growing up neither of my parents heard it so it really wasn't until I was like 14 and there always was that cultural dissonance as well Uh, but then once I got to high school I guess when I was like 14 it's like in high school like just everybody listened to rap by then and you were weird if you didn't so it was just kind of normal by then but I, I would say like middle school era when that real popular shift happened in like the mid 2000s. Uh, there there was a little bit of cultural dissonance that I remember even on a very broad level of like popular music and stuff that was on TV and MTV and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, I like definitely grew up in a more uh, conservative uh, area than you guys both did. And I feel like that, like, I don't know. There are certainly, like, still a lot of parts of uh, the country that I feel like are, like, segregated certainly along, like, class lines. But, like, that generally veers into race. And, yeah, I don't know. It is one of those things, again, I don't think, like... Like everyone in like high school and like middle school and stuff like that was like listening to rap because it like I don't know it's it's of the time and like I don't know it's popular music like what are you like you of course you're gonna listen to it and it's like strange like not to but I feel like it growing up where I did it's like weird because it's just like there's this element of like. I don't know, just kids getting, like, black culture but not, like, knowing all that many, like, black families or black friends, like, in neighborhoods. And I feel like that more so, like... I don't think, like, as a kid, like, it left, like, a weird... Like, impression on me, or it didn't feel weird. But, like, certainly now, after the fact, there there are a lot of, uh, I don't know suburban white kids doing, like, imitations that uh certainly were not true to themselves. And, like, there's that, like, weird level of identification there where it's just, like, you're imitating this, but, like, what, just, like, you're so far removed from any, like, level of, like, connection to whatever kind of lifestyle you're trying to do there that it's, like, funny. But, again, like, I feel like that happens with anything, like, in, like popular culture
0: that's you know i feel like that's a good point to bring up because uh part of the interview i read between armand white and tobac and of course armand armand white one of the the few critics although ebert liked this movie too so maybe um i shouldn't say that but it's like arm you know if you were to think in your head would armand white appreciate this movie i guess it could be a stretch he could have he would either hate or love it but he, he seems to love it and he's very interested in Toback as a director in general, but I I think it's just interested, interesting. This interview he kind of has like Tobak himself, you know, grew up growing up as a young adult in the '70s. I, you know, I think he wanted to be the the wokest man alive, and uh, <laughs> but like kind of not not in the way as we see it now, like kind yeah, of, I don't know, like a '70s woke if that makes sense. And he kind of felt that weirdness where people. Um, You know, talked about blackness, but didn't really have any like black people in their lives or whatever. And maybe he felt himself as part of that. So he went to go live with uh, Jim Brown, uh, actor, running back. And uh, there's just a very funny passage uh, that I want to read just for laughs. I don't know. We can analyze it if we want, but I I just want to. Tobac kind of went under. A transformation under Jim Brown he kind of uh, he was influenced by them in a a sense and this is a quote uh, about his time there he said I obviously kept a part of my own language but I slipped into rhythms and speech patterns that I guess might have been a bit comical to an outsider but I certainly didn't find it funny I enjoyed doing it and it felt it made me fit in better and and I felt it to be natural I wore a dashiki almost daily I had my hair to the, to the extent that I could get it a pseudo Afro. I definitely walk differently. I very consciously developed a kind of quasi limp that was modeled on Jim Brown's walk. And I also uh, would say that sexually there was a sense of physical abandon in that house that I had never before, and I don't think I ever would have, had I not been exposed to that sexual environment. So that last part's a little little mm. dicey. Maybe the whole part's yeah. a little dicey, to be Well, yeah. for different but, reasons, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, uh, it's kind of funny that in, in this passage, he's kind of describing what the young kids are doing in the movie.
2: Oh, you know? absolutely, yeah. It's like, again, with what you're talking about, like, and like particularly Toback's experience of like not knowing any black people and then just like chilling with Jim Brown and changing like it's very funny because I feel like it is the way like kids like in the movie and then just like at large like imitate like popular culture and like it's funny that it's like the way Toback's doing it it's just like like he's like okay i want to experience and understand this culture but it's also you veer into the direction of being like hanging out with one black guy and being like this is representative of like black culture at large especially with what he's talking about i mean he seems to be differentiating a little bit with like that the environment of that house but he's i don't know speaking into more broader generalizations there
1: This segment of the interview obviously reflects a large uh, portion of the movie in terms of the racial identity crises that people have, and uh, also reminded me of a few favorites of the pod. Of course, you have uh, Bill Simmons' racial identity crisis in his book of basketball, where he's referred to as uh, Jabal Simmons, Uh, and you also have the great, not great song, but fantastic album, Street Hassle by Lou Reed, which has the song... I want to be black, Uh, which I think all you really need to know uh, outside of the fact that it is pretty bad and offensive, uh, the the satire lays in the verse that says i don't want to be a fucked up middle class college student anymore i just want to have a stable of foxy little whores yeah i want to be black so obviously there is a certain coolness that is projected in a certain type of media uh that is far from representative of black culture at large of course uh but the way that Hip hop mythologizes people, and the way that, let's say, in the '70s, black exploitation movies, uh, you know, mythologized people. Uh, like you, you can see why the the middle class on we of a person like james Toback lou reed bill simmons etc uh would be like projecting themselves onto this whole other world to them which really is just the same world that they live in uh but they've lived in such a segregated culture that it just can only cause shock and it can cause a weirdness like this movie that passage from the book of basketball and i want to be black by lou reed I want to be black, and that's rhythm. Shoot twenty feet of chisel too, and fuck up a chew I want to be black. I want to be a panther, have a girlfriend named Samantha, and have a stable of foxy horse. Whoa, whoa, I want to be black.
2: Oh, I don't want to be a fucked up.
1: See
0: that was worth it. That was worth the windup. I I, yeah. I I really liked that. I, I think that it's funny to link all those guys together in history. Lou Reed, Toback, <laughs> Bill Simmons. But, <laughs> well, Bill Simmons <laughs> was
1: also a, uh, Bill Simmons was a producer while working at ESPN, uh, on a short film by the Safti Brothers about James Toback, real, an oh, early Safti Brothers short film made for uh, like Grantland online video or whatever. Uh, it, it, it's about James Toback and Norman Mailer's fight, and it's like a recollection of it, like an oral history, directed by the Safties, produced, of course, by Bill Simmons because he was the boss of Grantland. Yeah. So there's oh, the connection. This. Yeah. Right what is what a small world <laughs> we live in. And I'm sure the Safdie brothers like Lou Reed. Next. <laughs> I'm sure they like James Toback. I bet they t- talk about it a lot. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that. <laughs> it's so clear that Toback influences their films, like his autobiographical story, mm-hmm. films like The Gambler, just like reading about that film. And I think they've mentioned him in interviews. I would have to assume that they do. Uh One very funny thing about James Toback is uh, if you look up... And this is just from the people I followed. But I looked up James Toback just like on Twitter from the people I follow... And uh, the amount of times that Will Sloan has tweeted about James Toback is about a hundred times more than anybody else combined, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're 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 gonna have Will Sloan on to talk about like the Gambler or Fingers or something like that in the near future for sure. Yeah, but uh, he he said uh, his his initial review of Uncut Gems, his tweet from like 2018 was Uncut Gems. Ha! The safties got you to like a James Toback movie. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, this is quite an introduction to I don't know Tobak as a director. You know? Yeah, I mean? absolutely.
1: Like... I can't wait to watch more. I mean, I hate to say that. Look, I'm pirating the films. I'm not supporting the guy. <laughs> it's just he seems like a very <laughs> interesting, horrible figure that I want to dissect more. That's
2: part of it. It's just like he's a weird, fucked up guy, and you want to like you want to get inside that skull and see what he's see what's clanging around in there
1: absolutely what makes him tick who's his guys (laughs) what'd you say it's
2: like the kramer
1: portrait yeah the kramer portrait exactly
0: (laughs) Uh, 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 uh. i want to watch a it's funny that his next movie is harvard man and stars uh, adrian grenier of uh entourage (laughs) fame it kind of looks like a fake movie that he would be in in entourage and uh,
1: scott Kahn's in entourage too right
0: yeah, Scott Cons is also in only like for a couple seasons, but yes, he's an. I wonder
1: how many uh, Entourage cast members James Toback has put in his movies before. Because is Brett Ratner also in Entourage at any point? As Brett himself? Ratner
0: is also at, in Entourage at, at himself. <laughs> I, there's a
1: whole Brett Ratner. Episode, I was going to rack multiple. up the amount of sex offenders associated with this movie, but I'd rather rack up Entourage cast members. That's more of a positive yeah. spin.
0: Tyson tyson has probably both? appeared in entourage yeah he yeah, fits in but, both um, categories
1: let's not talk about the overlap, yeah. the category <laughs> <laughs> the the one circle venn diagram
0: <laughs> <laughs> the robert downey gay stuff is kind of like weird throughout the movie Absolutely. although i do think that scene between uh tyson and downey jr is just so kind of holds up as a as a scene even outside of the movie just kind of a
1: yeah, it feels like Downey Jr. in his like Saturday Night Live era, just like goofy <laughs> stuff, you know. But like the way Tyson reacts
0: feels so genuine. Oh and, yeah, like, that's like the mo- that's as close as the movie gets to like getting that documentary feel to it because it it really the the improv there is is pretty masterful. And say.
1: of course, uh, Toback did make a documentary about Mike Tyson. True. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's pretty much gonna do it on this one. Uh, that was a very fun movie, wasn't it? Uh, thank you, Malcolm, for selecting this one.
0: You're welcome. Man. You're welcome. Do you
1: anybody have any final thoughts on uh, on Toback and uh, this, this picture?
2: I think we're good. I feel like we've pretty unlike the movie, we have neatly put a bow on black and white <laughs> race relations and how it's disseminated through culture. Yeah, it's all resolved now.
1: All right, then we will be right back on Extended Clip. I, I want
2: to know about the wall. I want you to tell me about the wall. All right, tell Sam, so I'll tell you about the, the wall.
1: wall. This wall right here is a monument to two fallen soldiers that lived out here. America is definitely eating this young. And it's past time that we did something about it and took responsibility for our own ways and actions. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That. That's
2: why you got Can It Be? All so simple. Wu-Tang. It ain't that because, simple. You know what I mean? It's never that simple. That's why after the laughter, there's always tears. You'd you be no surprised yeah, how yeah, many white kids do know what shit. time it is. You know what I'm saying? You know, everybody's talking about the good old days, right? Yeah. Everybody, the good old days, the good yeah. old
1: days. Good old days. Well, yeah. let's talk
2: about the good old let's days. Let's talk about them Ask your question, Dean. What you think these white people really want from us, man? You know what I'm talking about. White motherfuckers out here trying to imitate us, trying to rap, trying to dress black and all this shit. Bitches throwing pussy all over. What's going on with this shit? A lot of people just think it's like size, you know, the myth. Niggas got bigger dicks and shit. But I don't think that's it, though, man. I think they think they're going to get some kind of life force or some shit from fucking with us.
1: And we're back on Malcolm in the Middle. Well, it's you know, yeah, and we're back Mal- on Malcolm at, back. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm at the back. What? Malcolm at the back? Like, I don't like the sound of that.
0: <laughs> I'm in the back well- with one foot on the wall, kind of whistling. I-
1: I guess so. That's better. Uh, that's a better picture. But it's the Malcolm in the middle segment. And speaking of, you know, do, do we have any uh Malcolm's gambling corner going on in in honor of uh James Toback? No, I I'm I'm I'm
0: a reformed gambler. You're you're the gambler of the podcast now, man. You You, you you're haven't gambled off. what since
1: the NBA playoffs?
0: Yeah, pretty much. I don't I I barely gambled on that to honestly the last yeah. bet I hit was uh Patrick Reed being top five in the Masters—that's the last bet. (laughs)
1: Hey, you know, take him where you can find him. Exactly. I'm just like feeling very good right now, having seen Wempenyama's summer league debut last night, and uh, a couple days ago, I put in the bet on his on the under for his points per game for the season. Uh, The line was at eighteen and a half, which is insane. Uh, so that's I'm ridiculous. feeling pretty. Yeah. I, I, that bet no longer exists on Bovada. Like my bet is still good, of course, but you can't make that anymore, um, of course, after last night. Uh, but yeah, hey man, when those Rookie of the Year odds come back, I, you gotta go. You gotta go, Scoot Henderson. If it's plus two hundred or better, you gotta go, Scoot Henderson. That's that's the gambling corner. Now, for Malcolm in the middle. Malcolm, have you watched anything good since the last time we recorded?
0: You know, I watched this movie called Less Than Zero, uh, starring, funny enough, Robert Downey Jr. And kind of one of his more iconic performances, you know, kind of made him a star in people's eyes. And it's kind of a, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of a basic story. Some, some fresh out of high school, young adults, early 20s types. We got a, we got a trio of Andrew McCarthy... Robert Downey Jr. and Jamie Gertz here, kind of like a weird throuple type of, uh, you know, one guy is dating the girl of the group and the other guy's dating the girl of the group type situation. And basically Robert Downey is like a rich, rich junkie doing too many drugs. And he's in trouble with uh, James Spader, who plays a drug dealer in this. Pretty, you know, kind of funny to see James Spader get casted as a drug dealer, but then he kind of still just acts kind of like as the teenage characters he'd play in these teen movies from the era still kind of uh giving off that rich kid snottiness. although i think that's obviously the point you know kind of like this privileged drug dealer but it's just kind of a funny performance who actually robert downey is so in debt to spader that spader's making uh, downey turn tricks across los angeles making him uh, have sex with guys when he doesn't want to um this this movie i i liked it quite a bit a little bit more than i was expecting i'm kind of looking at my letterbox friends and no one really seems to like like this movie at all i think i think it's because um it's very easy to not feel sympathetic for the main characters in this movie it's you know bunch of it's kind of like the main characters from black and white you know almost in a way kind of like these rich suburban kids you know but i it's I don't know the the basis of melodrama you know in, in all these 50s movies a lot of those characters are wealthy types you know what i mean it's a lot, a lot of the great melodramas have dealt with uh the sad and the wealthy you know what i mean it's it's kind of it's an interesting phenomenon right it's it's kind of like, you know, like how i mean it's 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 old at this point but i i still think it's it's one worth looking at you know kind of like how can one be so wealthy achieve everything you know give everything to your kid and they still end up being like exactly the opposite of what you want them to be and uh but to be honest those aspects of this movie are not what makes it good it's uh ed lockman doing the cinematography i've never heard of this one of director before yeah one of the best uh this this the director is named marek marek kanezia and he never really directed anything as big after this but kind of just seeing kind of cool rich kid Los Angeles in like uh, 1986 and kind of kind of like the locations that they get and how they're shot and kind of like uh you know there's a lot of parties in this movie just the elaborate kind of parties that kind of capture the imagination of like this lifestyle I you know it I, I feel like that's its kind of most worthwhile thing kind of uh presenting these these weird uh uh elaborate parties with crazy set design and kind of uh just the architecture of all these people's houses it's kind of i, I guess i kind of like it in a materialistic way but and, and, and i think the performances are strong too so uh um you know if, if you're on my age i, I bet your parents I bet your parents probably have, saw this movie and ha- have an opinion on it so uh you know it's Tell, tell them to watch a uh, less than zero dance and see what they think.
1: Yeah. I want to check that out. I want to read the book, the uh, Brett Easton Ellis, of course. Uh, I mainly know of that movie because of a song on the soundtrack. It has an incredible song by Roy Orbison kind of in that era when he was doing like mystery girl, like his last studio album. Um, and it's written by Glenn Danzig, of all people, uh, the master of horror himself, uh, writing for Roy Orbison for a song on that soundtrack. It's really great. Uh, called, I think yeah, it's called Life that, Fades Away.
0: Yeah. And when that song hits, it's, uh, I, didn't know that. I didn't know that that song came from this movie. So it was, it was a very nice surprise.
1: Yeah, it's an original composition, you know, between, I don't know, there, there's a couple very late period Roy Orbison bangers, between that and the uh, Elvis Costello penned The Comedians. Um, JT, you see anything uh, recently that you liked?
2: Uh, yeah, no. Just the other night, I watched uh, a big bl- like comedy blind spot that i had been meaning to get to for a while uh it was i watched it with Nico, and it was a childhood favorite of his as uh, none other than tommy boy uh starring oh my god a childhood favorite of mine as well chris farley and it's like one of those things where it's like i don't know um i'm sure had uh farley uh lived longer like i feel like he would have like a great like legacy, like continuing, even like working alongside like Sandler, like you can, you can, you can speculate for hours what that would have been like. Uh, but I don't know in terms of like stacking Tommy boy up against, uh, nineties, like Sandler comedies. I, it just, it isn't as funny to me as those are, but there's still a lot of really good gags. And I don't know. I, I feel like I've thought a lot about uh, what Malcolm said last week where he was like uh, more and more tone is uh, what the deciding quality of like how you uh, like a movie. And with something like Tommy Boy, it's just like you get, I don't know, just the atmosphere is great. It's a road trip movie. You got your buddies Farley Spade, Denahi uh like i don't know there's it's a it's a good stable uh of like i don't know just 90s like comedy cast rob Lowe, rob Lowe, yeah um and i don't know it's even if i feel like there are a lot of gaps in like the material like i feel like especially like the driving like back and forth banter between Farley and Spade isn't necessarily the best, but I do think the way their friendship grows is very organic, even if it is just like, you know every beat of the plot, but there's a comfort in that familiarity and just like, I I don't know, the movie's not doing anything crazy or new, but it's just a very pleasant, familiar ride, and uh, I'm glad I finally got around to it.
0: I mean, yeah, Farley's one of the great, tone setters onto himself right like you know his type of comedy is, you know you're getting something very specific there and yeah i feel like i feel like he would have been like it would it is obviously it's sad that he died and i would have liked to see you know his career progress you know uh maybe see chris farley's like cracking up or smorgasbord or
2: whatever yeah yeah
0: i, I you know who, who knows if it gets to that point but I don't know. It just would have it would've it it would have seen, been interesting to you know see his comedic career kind of play out. See how it would compare to like other big pl- people at the time like Jim Carrey, you know, someone we we definitely got uh cut off short there with Farley.
1: What if he got really skinny like Jonah Hill? Ugh.
0: Oh, uh, you he, he would get the Ozempic for sure. I mean, that's
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's happening by
0: the by the way, that's how everyone's going to be skinny in five years. So <laughs>
1: five that's, that's going to be fun. <laughs> All right, it sounds good to me. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, yesterday, I rewatched "Where Is the Friend's House," the first entry in the Coker trilogy by Abbas Kiarostami. This is a very simple film, a very A to B plot. Uh, it's deceivingly simple in its narrative gambit. Uh, In a way that, you know, all the thematic stuff and all the formal stuff kind of sneaks up on you slowly. Uh, The very simple premise is that this young boy accidentally takes his classmate's notebook home with him. Uh, He saw earlier in the day the teacher yelled at him for not having his notebook. And he worries for his classmate's, uh, you know, suspension or expulsion from the school, perhaps. Uh, So he goes on a journey... To give the notebook back to his friend, along the way there are lots of long scenes of uh, long shots, long takes of him walking up a hill in a uh, zigzag trail, and it's some of the most memorable imagery in the Kiristami filmography. Uh, it's a film where the adults and children feel like they're living in separate societies, and I feel like Kiristami has always, you know, been so great at filming youth. Uh, Leading up to this movie, you know, you had homework, uh, among other nonfiction efforts of his that were all focused on the youth and on education. And I feel like the rigidity of the form in this, the way that the camera is so often still, unless it's exactly tracking alongside a character and the very precise framing and cutting and everything, uh, compared to a more gonzo effort, like close-ups documentary style, you know. Uh, the, the form is as rigid as Kiristami ever got here. Uh, and I think that's a great reflection thematically on this boundary between adults and children in this movie. Because the adults are so rigid. Uh, they are so strict. And it's all because they want the kids to grow up to be good people. Uh, but of course there is a line there. There's a certain level of understanding that is not achieved between the adults and the children and there's misunderstandings and there's resentment that grows, of course. Uh, and there's a lack of, uh, you know, showing your interior side as it were, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this film about kind of community. And, you know, the kid, he meets this old man that made doors for half the neighborhood and, you know, how this neighborhood has kind of been built upon tradition and, even if the film is undecidedly taking the side of the youth, it's also hearing out these old people in a way that is extremely compelling and makes their case crystal clear as to why they feel the need for such a rigid conservative society uh, And I think it's a incredible like intersection of uh, form and content there from Kirtoambi and probably like his first masterpiece.
0: yeah, I mean his. I feel like, you know, this isn't even controversial to say, but the, the work he did with children, you know, both acting and documentary, I don't think anyone's really eclipsed him there. Like, I, I really mm. feel like some of his work and the understanding he has uh, for children, I don't know, is, is very moving and touching. And a lot of ways, you know, where other, other movies and other directors can't exactly uh, get away with it. It'll feel too schmaltzy, but I, I think... Uh, like you said, it's the perfect intersection of, of form and content. And that's what I think of when I think of Kyrostami.
1: On the absolute opposite end of the spectrum, the day before that I also watched Indecent Proposal. Uh, because I love <laughs> me some you know, 90s Hollywood slop. I'll watch all of it. This one was particularly bad, though. I gotta say, uh, a lot of people, you know, it's it's everyone's favorite thing on film Twitter to be like, don't you miss those erotic thrillers from the 90s <laughs> and late 80s? were they so good? And it's like, okay, so Adrian Lin, he's supposed to be like the auteur of the genre, right? And this one, even though it do, I know the script isn't supposed to be like, nobody thinks the script of Indecent Proposal is good, but it is bafflingly bad on almost every level other than the general competency of studio filmmaking in the nineties, which we've talked about all the way back to our very first episode was something like scent of a woman, which like the, the form of is way better than it has any right to be because Hollywood technicians at that time were working at such a high level in decent proposal. I got like the new 4k remaster of it. It looks fucking gorgeous, man. Like it's so soft and lush and textured And, uh, you know, the lighting is just, like, dynamic in every scene. And it's just a total piece of junk, though. And the eroticism is a fucking joke. It's, like, literal Skinamax shit in between just, like, really bad trying drama. That It's funny for the first, like, 45 minutes or so. Then it's pretty rough sailing uh, after that. So, you know, next time uh, you ask for those, you know, erotic thrillers to come back, think about what you actually want. Do you want Basic Instinct and body double? Of course you do, because those are auteurs who are looking at that uh, genre from a distance. And In '84, it wasn't even really a popular genre. Body doubles doing it about like softcore porn and stuff like that. Uh, but with Basic Instinct, especially, it's an auteur looking at a distance uh, at this genre as a phenomenon in the United States, and they're doing cultural commentary while also, of course, indulging in the sleaze because. Who else does cultural commentary while indulging in sleaze like De Palma and Verhoeven? That is all on that rant.
0: I I feel like this movie uh, is kind of, you know, it's not that popular, but it's kind of lasted in kind of the cultural conscious because I think the concept is better than the movie itself. You know what I mean? Or it's like, it's, it's like a classic, uh, you know, it's like a, a street question that you'd see in, like, those TikToks <laughs> where teenagers ask weird sexual questions to people. Yeah. Like, it's like, would, would you let, you know, your wife have sex with another man for a million dollars? And I think that kind of captures people's imagination. But yeah, everything else about it is is kind of fun. You know, I guess Robert Redford had to, you know, he was keeping independent cinema alive by taking <laughs> these jobs and running Sundance, right? So you got to you got to make your indecent proposals and, you know, lay dick every once in a while to to, to keep the bills paid.
1: Woody Harrelson on the tarmac chasing after the helicopter. That's, that's fun. That's like, that as like the built-in trailer moment is so fucking good. Uh,
0: I changed my mind!
1: uh, Well, that is going to do it for this week's extended clip. Uh, the month of music continues next week. JT, uh, I believe it is your turn to choose a movie.
2: What do you got? Um, I am selecting a little tale about a country singer named Loretta Lynn, and it is Coal Miner's Daughter. Uh, this is one I feel like I've heard, I don't know, a lot, like, I've heard some stuff about, I feel like it was, did this, I think it won some sort of Oscar, it kind of seems like it might be on the border of like, uh, like Oscar Beatty bullshit, but I don't know, I'm curious enough about, uh, Loretta Lynn, Coal Miner's Daughter, Hell of an Album, uh, yeah, I don't know, I, I wanna see what this one is all about.
1: All right. Well, until then, I don't know. if That's it. Bye. Bye. My time has come. The clouds are calling.
2: December wind has come my way. And now I feel the world
0: falling. All at once,
2: it's too late. Life fades away. <laughs>
0: Tired of tomorrow,
2: lost for today.
0: I long to.